Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Drums, turtle doves, partridges in pear trees, precisely the type of discretionary consumer spending that has been crushed this year. Today, we bring the 12 days of Christmas up to date to tell the story of markets in 2022. We'll look at the major trends of the past year and ask which will continue into 2023. And in today's dumb question of the week, did the wise men construct a good portfolio for Jesus? Okay, let's get into it. So my original plan for this episode was to make you Santa, Roman, and do a naughty and nice list of assets in 2022. But then I looked at the list of assets and thought, everything's going to be on the naughty list. You're going to be a terrible Santa. <laughs> so I had to change tack. And so what we're doing is the 12 days of Christmas. And on the 12th day of Christmas, Mr. Market sent to me 12 prices leaping. How could we not start this summary of 2022 without talking about inflation? It's dominated the year. And it was interesting because it started off as something that was very focused on energy and food prices. But then strangely, what happened was that it kind of broadened out into other goods. And now we're starting to see clear evidence that people are asking for wage increases. And if that really kicks off, we could see a full on wage price spiral in the UK. Because everyone's asking, has inflation peaked? Certainly in America, there's some signs that it's on its way down now. Yeah, I think America is the one place where there is a pretty clear sign that it's reached the top, for now at least. That doesn't rule out the possibility we'll get a double spike, which is what happened in the 70s. But certainly for the US, it seems to have turned around. Whereas if you look at Europe, not only is it high, but it seems to still be rising in many countries. I mean, it kind of seems like Europe might be six months behind where the US has been throughout this whole cycle. But if you look at the actual breakdown in Europe, if you look at the Eurozone inflation numbers, there are some countries where it's over 20%. So you're thinking, well, 10% is awful, but twice that it must be incredibly painful for families at this time of year, especially. So what do we feel about inflation next year then in 2023? Is it going to start coming down towards its 2% target in Europe, in America? Or is it going to be persistently high? What is the central case here? I think the central case, from certainly from the central banks, is that it's going to come down. Not to its target level, you know, not 2%, but there's going to be a substantial fall over the course of 2023. You look at the Bank of England's forecast, the Fed's forecast, of course they're going to say that because, well, it's their job. <laughs> and what are you going to say about marking your own homework? You're going to say, yeah, we're going to succeed. And there is a kind of double think about this as well, because if they actually convince people that's going to happen, well, it could actually be a self-fulfilling prophecy if enough people believe them. It's weird, isn't it, how much of markets are all in the head, really? It's all about belief and expectations. <laughs> and it's difficult for the central banks because they have to really do this kind of psychological onslaught, really, <laughs> to convince people that they're competent. But here's an interesting question then about central banks. Given how much of inflation is driven by expectations, both from consumers and market participants, is there a case that central banks should lie Whatever they actually think, they should say that, yeah, inflation, of course, is going to come back down to target. <laughs> like, they don't have to be honest, do they? Rather than Jerome Powell coming to a press conference and saying, oh my God, have you seen the prices out there? <laughs> There's no way that's going to come down. Do you know what I mean, though? If they were modelling the numbers and it said that inflation was going to be still 6% in a year's time, they wouldn't say that, would they? Surely they'd say, no, it's going to come down. I think they've got to be transparent. So they look at the same numbers as many other people do as well. You know, they can't really fake it because it is publicly available information. They might have internal models that say, oh my God, it's going to be awful. Roman, you never let me have a conspiracy theory. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a conspiracy theory free zone. Yeah. 
Okay, well, on the 11th day of Christmas, Mr. Market sent to me 11 pipelines not piping. Oh, very good. And this is really the supply chain problems I assume you're referring to with energy. Yeah, so the energy mix in Europe has changed completely. So Russia was providing something like 40 or 50% of Europe's natural gas, and that's, you know, being driven pretty close to zero. Nord Stream is the one we're talking about, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and the supplies being cut. So, yeah, I think that's been the kind of main story this year. And you could, in a way, say that those pipelines have been the source of all of the problems that we've had. Because high inflation made policy tighten and a lot of the sell-off that we've seen is due to those higher rates. But I think thus far, Europe's actually surprised me by doing a pretty good job of adapting to a world with a lot less Russian gas. I didn't know if they'd be able to do it. I thought there was going to be rationing. And power cuts. It did sound pretty apocalyptic. And we have had a cold snap now, so it did kind of test the system. Although I think if it would have lasted much longer, it might have been more of a problem. There was one day, if you remember, in the UK where we were talking about power cuts. I think the main story here was that Europe was more able to switch its supply to liquefied natural gas from the global market than people expected. And like you say, we had a mild autumn and it allowed the storage capacity to get pretty well full. And now, as long as we don't have a ridiculously cold winter, we should get through it okay. I mean, I'm tempting fate here, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's talking about next year now, and they're saying, look, we got through it this winter, but this is not a problem that's going to go away. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Russian invasion of Ukraine is rambling on for some time to come, you know, well over a year. And what we've seen Europe just sign off on now is a price cap when it comes to natural gas. So the policy is if natural gas prices exceed 180 euros per megawatt hour for three days in a row, then prices across Europe will be capped at that level. Now, a lot of people are saying when you're reliant on importing liquefied natural gas, if you breach that cap and are not willing to pay the market price, surely you're going to start running down your reserves and not able to secure the supply you need. This is the question for next year, right? Because Europe's done a good job this year, but it's paid a huge price to fill up its <laughs> natural gas reserves. And it doesn't seem willing to do that going forward. Maybe it can't do that. And maybe there's going to be more competition with Asia, because that's the other question. There's been a cold snap in Japan, and they're also importing liquefied natural gas, probably from some of the same producers, such as the US. And of course, you've got China, which is a big importer of LNG. I think that's the real worry. These kind of conflicts over commodities can sometimes spill out into real hostilities. So that's one of the tail risks I'd be worried about. And then on the 10th day of Christmas, Mr. Market brought to me 10 rates arising. And this is really the other major story of this year, isn't it? Is that monetary policy across the world really has been tightening at unprecedented speed. Interest rates are going up. Yeah, so we're talking about over 400 basis points, over 4% tightening in the US over the course of the year. So I think this is certainly one of the fastest rate increases ever from the Federal Reserve. Now, the end point is going to be around 5%, just over 5%. So not only has it been rapid increases, but the terminal rate is higher than we expected, far higher than we expected when the hiking started. So fast and high. And also synchronised, you know, so you look at any central bank across the developed world and they're all raising. I mean, the question that everyone seems to be asking and has been asking for months now is, are we going to get a hard landing in the US, i.e. a recession or a soft landing? So inflation comes down without a recession. Or perhaps will we get no landing as in inflation doesn't come under control? So those are the three kind of scenarios over the next year everyone's looking at. 
And Powell's still saying that a soft landing is possible. So inflation would come down, unemployment wouldn't spike too much, because he says that a large number of employers are still very keen on holding on to their employees. Because they remember how hard it was to source new employees during the very tight labour market period. He says tech companies are kind of special, and those are the ones which are really visible in terms of layoffs. But if you look across the whole economy, it's a very different story. And very few people as a percentage of the labour force are employed in tech. That's right. And if you look at the number of large companies that employ Americans, the vast majority of people are employed by small to medium-sized companies. That's over half the workforce. It just seems implausible to me that we're going to get a soft landing, given how fast rates are rising. Like, I know there's models which you've talked about before, which is showing a kind of 90% chance of recession in the next 12 months. But the question is how deep it's going to be and how long it's going to be. And I think if the Fed's right, they're just forecasting a 0.5% growth rate. It'll just be weak growth rather than a deep recession. But look at the employment numbers. I mean, if you've got employment, which is looking that strong, it's going to be a very weird recession with such low unemployment. But employment is a kind of lagging indicator, isn't it? Maybe unemployment's on the way up and we just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, that's certainly possible. And nobody really knows what's going to happen, what the behaviour of US companies will be. But if big layoffs start, then yeah, then we're on course for a potentially deep recession. But I think a lot of the kind of apocalyptic predictions, which is this is going to be like an earnings recession that we haven't seen since the global financial crisis, I think that's pretty unlikely. But I think if we do see over the course of this year, if we do see inflation fall in the US, in Europe, in the UK, then a lot of these pressures which were put onto almost every part of the financial system will ease. But it might not come soon enough for some of those bubbly assets. Which brings us to the ninth day of Christmas, when Mr. Market brought to me nine bubbles bursting. (laughs) And it's interesting that so many bubbles are kind of popping at the same time. If you listen to Jeremy Grantham, he talks about three and a half bubbles. So you've got the property market, the equity market, and the bond market. And the trouble was, Romin, there's no three and a half in the song, so it had to be nine, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) But look, there are lots of other bubbles. I mean, if you look at cryptocurrencies, you've got nine easily there. So why did these bubbles pop? Is it as simple as money got more expensive, so it just took all the euphoria out of the market? That's certainly true of the housing market. That's one of the most rate-sensitive markets out there. It's certainly true of growth stocks, which are very rate-sensitive. And it's certainly true of the bond market. So those three definitely are due to higher interest rates. But I think also people become less tolerant when rates are higher because you're much less willing to put your money into speculative projects if the government's willing to pay you, I don't know, 4% for lending them money. Yeah, the threshold to throw your money away is higher (laughs) if the government's paying you an income. Well, the threshold for stupid, I think, is kind of of lower when interest rates are at zero. But what bubbles have we got that are still left to pop? So to me, the real estate market in a lot of Western countries and China still looks very high on lots of measures like price to income, price to rent, still looks high. Yeah, the UK definitely does. And then you've got the credit market where credit spreads are at completely normal levels. So you're not getting paid a premium to hold junk debt. Yeah, I think we haven't seen a credit bubble pop yet. And I think that's a definite possibility for next year. Credit conditions will probably get worse, certainly as growth weakens and if interest rates stay high. 
And then we've got private equity, which has been very, very slow to mark down the value of its assets. Well, that's like the kind of quantum bubble, isn't it? It's kind of Schrodinger's bubble because it's probably popped, but we haven't observed it yet. Which brings us nicely to the eighth day of Christmas when Mr. Market brought to me eight cryptos crashing. It's more than eight, isn't it? Let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, I've been generous <laughs> on them. all yeah. of them. <laughs> it's funny because I've tried to construct a diversified crypto portfolio just to see what would happen if you went for a kind of minimum variance approach where you combine different cryptocurrencies which have minimum correlation with each other to achieve maximum diversification. And it certainly would have sold off a bit less than going for, you know, some of the really dodgy small cap cryptos. But how much less? Not that much less, I reckon. Not that much less, no, because they're all highly correlated and they all fall together. But I just wonder, you know, now how are they going to sell this? Because the narratives have kind of imploded. It wasn't an equity hedge. It wasn't an inflation hedge. It wasn't the new gold. So they're going to have to come up with some kind of new narrative around what cryptocurrency actually is. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And the other thing is, there's just so many questions around market structure right now in cryptocurrencies. So we saw, you know, one of the biggest exchanges in FTX go bankrupt this year. Many stable coins lost their peg. And now there's questions of what more contagion is there to come. There's lots of questions over Binance. So you look at it and there's quite a lot of red flags around Binance, which is the biggest crypto exchange by trade volume. Did you see the interview with Becky Quick? It was just absolutely wonderful. It was the biggest eye roll I've ever seen <laughs> from her. Brilliant. <laughs> she asked him, she asked him straight, she said, so if people withdrew 1.2 billion, I think the number was, from your exchange, would you be able to cope with it? And he came up with some kind of fluffy answer. And then the camera kind of zoomed in on Becky Quick and she was just <laughs> yeah. doing this incredible eye roll. I mean, it was just astonishing. But the thing is with Binance, so they're under ongoing investigation from the Justice Department in the US for possible money laundering and sanctions violations. This is what's been reported all across the media. Mazars, I think, pulled out of being their auditor. Yeah, so they lost their auditor, who wasn't really doing a full audit. They were just doing so-called proof of reserves to show you know, what Binance supposedly had in their locker to be paying out. But they weren't doing like proof of liabilities, which you need to do both sides of the equation, right? You need to say, this is what we own and this is what we owe. It's no good just saying this is what we own. But in the interview, he said, oh, no, we don't owe anything. You know, we don't owe any money to anyone, which makes you think, well, is that true? Can that be true? No, obviously it can't be true. <laughs> Their auditor, Mazars, like you say, and I quote, have halted all work for crypto clients and they basically just took down the website where they were vouching for Binance's books. So it makes you think that's a little bit of a red flag, isn't it? I mean, it's just the same playbook, really, in a way that happened to FTX. A lot of the same red flags are there. So they're experiencing a lot of withdrawals now, something like 3 billion net withdrawals over 24 hours. Their native token, BNB, has slumped in value. They've interestingly just agreed to acquire the assets of the crypto lender Voyager Digital, who went bankrupt earlier this year for $1 billion. Now that's, you know, what we saw FTX doing in the summer, right? Bailing out all these failed crypto projects. And CZ, who's the founder and owner of Binance, said, if you get hurt by one bank, you're going to think all the other banks are bad. The fact is, just because one bank is bad doesn't mean all the other banks are bad. Now, one, he shouldn't be admitting they're a bank for starters. <laughs> and two, yes, I do think all the other banks might be bad. Well, you can't trust these crypto exchanges right now. Or confuse them with banks, because I think they're not. Well, if they are, they're unregulated. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's even possible to even think of them as banks. So people were talking about a run on FTX. Well, you can't have a run if, unless it's a bank. 
But the thing is, they are banks. They call themselves exchanges, but they're doing all the roles that banks do. So they're offering loans and leverage, they're market making, they're prop betting on their own markets. Like they're not exchanges. It's just a misnomer. So I think the problems are, you know, lack of transparency, a kind of mis-self-identification, and of course, a lack of regulation. And that's one of the problems, which is that when you get a rapid increase in interest rates, the unregulated shadow banking system is where a lot of leverage is kind of hidden. And these are the consequences. And we've talked about it before, that it's difficult to regulate crypto just from a jurisdictional point of view. Yeah, I think there's going to have to be some kind of resolution there. Because you look at large investment banks, they're multinational, and they still manage to be regulated in every country where they do business. But it's a bit like trying to regulate Santa, isn't it? He doesn't really abide by (laughs) the national jurisdictions. He's just flying all over the world, delivering presents. Yeah, but look, if you started delivering presents coated in lead paint, you know, how would that work? I think there's still got to be some standard. He'd be shot down. (laughs) (laughs) But is there any potential for a crypto rebound in the short term? Or is this just a crypto winter, as they say in the industry, and it's going to last years? I think it's going to last a long time, just like the previous bubbles which popped, particularly as rates are going to stay high for some time. But it's not just crypto, is it? So on the seventh day of Christmas, Mr. Market brought to me seven tech stocks tanking. There have been some really big shocks there. Things like Amazon. Because the thing is, if you strip away the tech stuff, Amazon is very much a consumer discretionary sector stock. So it's stuff that you don't really need. So once you get inflation and you've got bills that you can't pay, you're going to cut back on the consumer discretionary stuff. So their revenue has been really smashed. That's definitely one big part of their business. But the other part of their business, the cloud business, is a consumer staple, really, isn't it? It's like a business to business, which you're always going to need now. It's like a utility. But also cyclical, I'd say, because if you need lots of computer storage capacity, it's because you've got a lot of business. And if there's less economic activity, then I think it's going to feed through into that as well. So even companies like Microsoft, which just has crazy margins and is so easy to sell because it's so ingrained in all of our IT, even that's going to, I think, suffer. Yeah, so I've got a good graph here from Bloomberg, which I'm looking at, which kind of sums up the performance of these FANG stocks, as they used to be called, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. So the broad S&P 500 this year is down, you know, roughly 18% or so. The NASDAQ, which is more of a tech-focused index, that's down roughly 30%. But then these FANG stocks, which are the big tech companies, are down almost 50% from the start of the year. So we started off really concentrated in those stocks. And whenever there's a huge concentration, the way it pans out is always the same, which is a huge sell-off in those very bubbly stocks. And to put some numbers on that, so the concentration of big tech in the S&P 500 kind of peaked around the second half of 2020, where it was almost 20% of the index in just those five stocks. And that's now declined to roughly 13% of the S&P 500. So it has come down a lot, but it's still a big slice of it. So it may have further to fall if things get worse next year, if inflation takes longer than people expect to come down. But rates will certainly stay high for a long period of time. It's not going to bode well for those companies. And it's not just those big tech companies that have suffered because, you know, they're good companies. They're generating massive profits. They've been successful and their stock prices have risen over the past decade for a good reason, which is that they've generated a lot of free cash flow. But the tech crash has also really knocked the speculative technology companies. Yeah, all the kind of Kathy Wood type stocks have certainly suffered. And people haven't capitulated with Kathy, which is interesting. 
The number of shares outstanding in her fund is still pretty high. So I think people still believe that we're going to go back to the way things were. You know, growth stocks are going to have huge double digit returns. You know, everything will be fine. But I think that world is pretty much over. I think people do believe that. And it brings us to the sixth day of Christmas when Mr. Market brought to me six dead cats bouncing. It's funny because when people are first introduced into kind of jargon for investment, dead cat bounce is one of the ones that always makes people laugh. But it's the concept of something which seems to be rising, but really it's just a temporary lift and eventually it's just going to die or it's already dead. I mean, I've lost track of how many of these dead cat bounces or bear market rallies we've had this year. I mean, it must be, what, three, four, maybe five? Yeah, definitely four. And it may be the latest rally turns out to be one too. By definition, you have to find a new low after the previous peak. And I think that's looking pretty likely. People are just ingrained to buy the dip now, aren't they? Mentally. Still, yeah, I think that's true. People are still doing it. Although, if you look at Eric Balchunas's Twitter feed, he's actually shown that people have stopped buying the dip in ETFs. And they've started going for short funds, which make money if the price of the index goes down. Oh, interesting. To me, that says we might be nearing a market bottom then. (laughs) As a natural contrarian, that says, okay, now that's what I'm looking for, for it to turn around, is everyone to give up. I'd say it's a prerequisite, you know, for things to actually start powering upwards in a sustainable way. So how will we know when the market has actually turned a corner and we're not just in a bear market rally, but we're actually going up for reals this time? The thing is, you don't need to. You just need to know when valuations are reasonable. And I think that's probably the most powerful thing to know. You won't necessarily find the bottom, but you will find a bargain. So I think that's why valuation is useful. You don't have to know the future. You just have to know what's going on now. And I know you pulled the trigger and thought, yeah, valuations are looking reasonable now. I'm going all in. Yeah. So I think over the next two months, I'm going to be all in. You know, maybe it was too soon. Some people have said that. And I actually said on a YouTube live, I was just bored. (laughs) (laughs) Always a good way to invest. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I've been doing it for two years now, drip feeding into my equity allocation. People have said, oh, you shouldn't be caught up by emotion. But I'm not really. I'm just kind of speeding things up a little bit. And I will be holding this portfolio for a long period of time. To be honest, if you kept drip feeding over the next six to eight months, or you go in over the next two or three, it's not going to make a huge difference, unless there happened to be some ridiculously fast market crash. If it was another 30%, yeah, it would make a big difference or a reasonable difference. But I'm happy to buy US equity now, particularly things like small caps, which really do look very cheap, with the full knowledge that it'll probably fall further. Because we never know if things are going to fall further, do we? And everyone's always thinking about, oh, what's the crisis that's going to come around the corner? And how do I hedge against that crisis? Which brings us to, on the fifth day of Christmas, Mr. Market gave to me five gold bugs. You promised me you wouldn't sing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the gold bugs that used to talk on my channel aren't very vociferous anymore. But whenever I talk about gold, it kind of flushes out the people who do have these very extreme beliefs. But it's nothing as extreme as the crypto people or as militant, I don't think. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's always going to be a type of person who thinks the world's going to end imminently and therefore you need to hold whatever that big crisis hedge is. And traditionally that's been gold. And we've been through a few crises now over the last couple of years. So shouldn't gold have performed better? It's not done much, has it? But all of the things which make gold do well are kind of in reverse now. So we've got a very strong dollar. We've got very high real interest rates or really high compared to where it was just a year ago. And both of those are very bad for gold. So I think if you look at the valuation model we've got for members, that's actually showing gold is pretty close to fair value right now. 
So when would gold do well? Is it stagflation? Is that what we're looking for? Stagflation is definitely the best kind of scenario for gold. And of course, we've got stagflation in the UK right now, and we're likely to have it for some period of time. But the thing is, what matters is stagflation in the US, because that's such an important economy. And there, we're not really seeing stagflation. So to be clear, stagflation is weak growth at the same time as persistently high inflation. Growth is still reasonable, but not great growth. And inflation's high. So yeah, kind of staggish inflation. And is it good for gold because it kind of traps the central bank? They don't know whether to raise interest rates to tackle inflation or to cut them to tackle the weak growth. The thing is, interest rates, they're not very high when you get stagflation, certainly at the long end of the curve, because that prices in nominal growth as part of the driver for the yields. So if the US is in a stagflationary state, it probably means the dollar's not very strong. You know, that's not the world we see right now. Compared to the rest of the world, the US is looking pretty good. But if it were to enter stagflation, yeah, I think gold would be a pretty good hedge. Historically, it has been. Because almost every other asset class does badly in that scenario. Equity doesn't like it. Bonds don't like it. Often commodities don't like it. Certainly the industrial ones. So really, it's your last hope. I mean, to be fair to gold, it has stayed more or less flat this year, which, you know, compared to other assets, has done really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a good hedge. In fact, if you look at what's done well, it's energy, anything to do with energy. And gold, I guess, hasn't lost too much. And short-term government bonds and cash, you know, that was it really. But of course, cash in real terms has had a negative return. Yeah, well, so is gold. I mean, that's the question I have for gold over the last year. If you're holding it as a crisis hedge, you may as well have held cash, right? It just has the same yeah. return this year, but at much less volatility. That's right. Or zero volatility. <laughs> Gold's volatile. As long as inflation is not too high, gold isn't particularly useful as an inflation hedge. If you get kind of huge devaluation of your currency, then yeah, gold is something to consider. Yeah, so I guess all the gold bugs fear that fiat currency, as they would call it, is going to be worthless. Which brings us to the fourth day of Christmas when Mr. Market brought to me four falling pounds. Not been a good year for sterling, Robin. Awful. And, you know, I think a lot of the damage has been fixed. Sterling has rallied back from its real lows. But when people say to me, you know, should I be currency hedging my US holdings? You know, I'm not convinced that sterling's going to stage a huge rally. Purchasing power parity would put it at roughly 140 over 140. But, you know, in order to get there, you've got to have some kind of catalyst, something that makes people think, oh, I want to buy sterling. But what would make people do that? <laughs> it's hard to think of anything. Well, there are bargains, I guess. Look, the UK market's got bargains. There are companies which are very undervalued. Maybe there'll be some kind of renaissance in technology in the UK. We could come up with some breakthrough in nanotechnology or fusion power. Maybe that'll be the future for us, but I just see that as unlikely. I mean, a big part of the story here is the strength of the dollar rather than the weakness of the pound, right? Pretty much every currency has somewhat struggled against the dollar this year. Yeah, and the yen's tanked by an unbelievable amount over the course of the year. So it's, you're right, it's not just the pound, it's just a story about the dollar. But in addition to the story about the strong dollar, there's also a story about a weak pound relative to other countries. So for us, it's been even worse. And really at the heart of it is our productivity, which has been very poor for a long time now. And there are no really quick fixes for low productivity. Education's probably the best one. And that takes a long time to take effect. And what are the prospects for the dollar, do you think, in 2023? Is it going to start weakening? The thing is, if the central case that the central banks have come up with comes to pass, which is falling inflation, 
then yeah, I think the dollar will weaken. We saw it towards the end of this year. That's exactly what happened. The very rapid reversal of the strength of the dollar as inflation seemed to be peaking. So I think a lot of the things will go into reverse over the short term. Because a lot of people say that a strong dollar puts a lot of pressure on the rest of the world. It kind of exports inflation, maybe, to other countries. And it can cause real problems in emerging markets where they've got government debt in dollars, like they've borrowed in dollars. And it's now much more expensive to service that debt. Yep, I think that's certainly true. And if you look at the cost of energy, which is obviously causing a lot of crises at the moment, that's priced in dollars. So when the dollar strengthens, it makes those imports much more expensive. Now, the US, the central bank does look at kind of second round effects, boomerang effects, they call it. But ultimately, they don't care. All they care about is what happens to the US economy. It's only if it kind of rebounds onto their financial system that they actually give a damn. And then on the third day of Christmas, Mr. Market brought to me three black swans. So I'm thinking here, the pandemic, obviously, the war in Ukraine. And I mean, we almost had a massive crisis, didn't we, with the LDI pensions in the UK and the kind of run on gilts, if you want. If the Bank of England hadn't stepped in, it would have been a really bad crisis where we're talking about pension funds becoming insolvent. I mean, it would have been a huge amount of wealth destroyed. But it's always the same. It's always these hidden pockets of leverage which cause the problem. And you don't realise they're there until they are a problem. And I think that's the problem with the shadow banking system, which is that there's lots of leverage there, but it's not transparent. Because I always think, you know, people say rates are rising or maybe the property market could fall 20, 30% in a kind of offhand way that that could happen. Like, yeah, it could happen, but surely that's going to have knock-on consequences. Like the biggest asset market in the world really is the property market. It's bigger than stocks, bigger than bonds. Yeah, I think that's a problem. But, you know, this is a crisis which we've been through quite recently. And that's the benefit, which is the regulators have actually geared up the financial system to survive just this kind of crisis. Yeah, ironic that you say geared up. Let's hope it's not too geared up. (laughs) It's not geared up. You know, I mean, this is one of the things they do measure, you know, how levered are the banks and will they be able to survive a fall in the property market? So as long as it's not worse than the risk scenarios, which they've run already, I think we'll be okay. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you see a lot of the financial media kind of sniffing around where's this hidden debt going to be because everyone knows there's going to be something somewhere so the ft's running stories about 80 trillion dollars of hidden debt around the world like everyone's waiting for it so it'd be hard to describe it as a black swan we just don't know where it's going to be but it's kind of nice in a way you know it it is going to be a surprise a nasty surprise admittedly but (laughs) yeah we all like a twist (laughs) but if you knew what it was going to be i mean people could do something about it you know there will be something it's bound to be but you know what should you do about it well On the second day of Christmas, Mr. Market brought to me two diamond hands, the best tool any investor has. (laughs) But I think that's one of the great things to come out of that Reddit forum, which is the idea of diamond hands. The fact that you kind of hold on to your investments no matter what happens. You don't sell when markets fall. You know, that's a great philosophy to have when it comes to investing. Yeah. So long as you're owning the kind of assets which over the long term will deliver consistent, strong returns. Yeah, I mean, if you've got Lehman stock or if you've got Enron stock, not such a good idea to have diamond hands. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about diamond hands with index funds. We're marrying the meme with the boring. That should be our strap line. But it's true, isn't it, in a way that we haven't seen real capitulation, I think, in the market. There's not been that despair where everyone's just like, sell everything. I'm never buying stocks again. Like people are diamond handing their way through this. And unless things get really bad, I think that's not going to happen. 
But if you look at, you know, cost of living, we've only recently had high bills start to kick in in the UK for energy, for example, over the last couple of months. And house prices have only just started falling. So I think, you know, we're very early on in what becomes a kind of war of attrition when it comes to sentiment, where there's just bad news, bad news, bad news, and it just goes on and on and on, and you just can't get away from it. But I think as long as the US economy holds up, I think things won't be so bad. And it's really about earnings, you know, how bad are earnings going to get in Q1 and Q2 of next year and so on. You know, I think that's the really important thing. And if there is a kind of earnings recession, that would be really bad. And then there would be a leg downwards, I think. But my central case is that's not going to happen. But you just have to look at things like correlations. Those have substantially changed. And that's been a bit of a shock as well. Whoa, 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 whoa. You've stolen my thunder. Because on the first day of Christmas, Mr. Market brought to me a broken Scooby-Doo tree. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to explain this for people. Okay, so when I first started Pensioncraft, I wanted to explain what correlation is. Because if you're trying to diversify a portfolio, you don't want to buy two assets which are highly correlated. But how can you visualise correlation? Well, one way is to do a tree structure where things which are highly correlated sit close together on the tree. So I did one for Vanguard funds, and then I characterised each branch of the tree. So the kind of exciting, crazy stuff would be Scooby-Doo, and then the kind of boring stuff would be Velma. So I tried to characterise each branch of the tree and each asset type according to its Scooby-Doo characteristics. What's happened is Velma started hanging out with Scooby-Doo this year. Yeah, Velma's got exciting. What can I say? But this typically happens if inflation's high then the correlation between bonds and equity increases. You know, that's something that's been around for a long time. People have noticed it before. Because both equity and bonds hate high inflation. It eats away at the income for bonds, and it eats away at the margins for companies, usually. What's weird about this crisis is that for equity, it really hasn't diminished their margins a lot. People are still willing to pay more for goods and services. And so the companies haven't taken a margin hit so far. So it's really the high margins which have been driving inflation. So do you think bonds will start to perform as an equity hedge again soon? Yeah, as long as inflation falls. But if inflation stays high, then no, the bets are off. You get the positive correlation. Now, this time of year, you're probably thinking, what's the best gift I could ever give anyone? And the answer, of course, is Pension Craft Membership. You get access to lots of members-only videos, plus you get to talk to me and other members on Slack, and you get access to our online trackers. To learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, did the wise men construct a good portfolio for Jesus? So they brought gold, frankincense and myrrh, trekked across the desert with this And, you know, they're extraordinarily high value gifts, especially at the time. I think even frankincense and myrrh were worth more than gold at the time, I read. So we need to make some assumptions here. Let's assume equal weightings between gold, frankincense and myrrh, 33% in each. Imagine Jesus came to you for a power hour, Roman. What would you say to him about this portfolio? Well, the thing is, as a son of God, basically you're immortal. So what we're talking about here is an infinite investment horizon. So probably you wouldn't want any kind of commodities which are going to decompose. So the frankincense and myrrh, I think, are a mistake. (laughs) Commodity heavy. It is commodity heavy. And I think, you know, you don't want softs in the commodity basket. You basically want to stick to gold, which will be around in 2,000 years' time and 10,000 years' time. But a 33% allocation to gold, Roman, that's punchy in anyone's portfolio. 
It's going to be volatile. So Jesus would have to have very strong diamond hands in order to hold on to that through all the kind of ructions over the next two millennia. I mean, the other thing is just the concentration risk when you look at his portfolio is high, isn't it? Just got three different investments and they're not diversified. So what I'd recommend is that he reduce the allocation to frankincense and myrrh, put those into his fund portfolio and treat them as a tactical investment. And then when there's a spike in the frankincense and myrrh markets, sell them and then produce a better diversified portfolio because I think he's taking too much risk. I mean, because when you think about it, frankincense has little real utility other than it smells nice. Now, people say, you know, gold has little utility. Well, frankincense, what, what is that? I mean, it also has supply chain issues consistently. There's fire risks, grazing risk, insects. I mean, a lot of people say there will be no frankincense production by 2050. Oh, there'll always be a market for frankincense. And myrrh, I mean, who could live their lives without myrrh? I mean, the risk when it comes to myrrh is really what you're doing there is taking a bet on pharma and biotech. It has mild medicinal properties. People use it to sort of numb the pain, but it's got no moat. That's the trouble with myrrh. It's a market that's ripe for disruption, I think, the myrrh market. (laughs) So I think the three kings have done a very poor job here. I mean, they're not particularly wise men, are they? They're not investors, it's pretty clear. I think they should have, you know, given him an ETF (laughs) with these uh, components, the gold, frankincense and myrrh ETF. I would have the ticker MAGI, M-A-G-I for this ETF. Well, that's very good. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.